This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Alicia Hernandez. For the next hour, we will explore the connections between Palestine and New Mexico with the guidance of Mazen Kamsia. Mazen Kamsia gave a presentation about human rights and environmental justice at Nahala Shalom, a congregation that is a spiritual and cultural center for Jewish renewal here in Albuquerque. Nahalat Shalom affirms and supports discovery and exploration of Jewish identity, which is why Christian, Palestinian, scientist, and author Mazen Kamsia came to speak about the intersections of our lives, the connections between ourselves, our histories, and our sciences. We'll be honoring the stories that he shared tonight. But first, here is I Feel Good by James Brown. I knew that I wouldn't I feel good I knew that I wouldn't So good So good I got you Tonight we will be learning from and listening to Mazen Kamsia Palestinian author and scientist he is the founder and the director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History, which he started with money right out of his own pocket. He's published over 130 scientific papers on topics from biodiversity to cancer. He has previously served on the faculties of University of Tennessee, Duke, and Yale, and now he teaches and does research at Bethlehem University. He's given hundreds of talks all across the globe and speaks mainly about media, activism, and public education. His presentation took a look at how colonization and racism is deeply tied to the work that he does. Here is Mazen Kamsia speaking about the structure of uprising in Palestine in the 80s and how he began some of the work that he continues to do today, almost 40 years later. I was uh, indeed chairman of the Palestinian Center for Approachment Between People. This is Center in Beit Sahur, my village, which was started in 1988. And at that time, at the height of the uprising of 1987 to 1991, some people mistakenly refer to that uprising as the first uprising or something like that. Uh, it was actually number 13, if you want to be precise, about uprisings, because we've had many before it, 1920, 21, and then 1929, 1936, and so on. Uh, but anyways, uh, during the height of that uprising, which was a very important uprising, and part of the reason it was important is because, um, because of the availability of uh, uh, news that brought news directly to people in the West uh, through CNN and other media and, and through the new invention of fax machines. This was before that. So, so faxes were used to deliver the stories about what was happening. Uh, but the other thing that was remarkable about that uprising is for the first time it also touched the Israeli public. And many Israelis started uh, thinking we should get involved in uh, pushing for peace and justice, things like that, much more than any time before that. And in 1988, actually, uh, we people in Beit Sahur were subjected to a siege because we refused to pay taxes to the Israeli occupation. So we 
so the Israeli military surrounded the town and subjected it to siege and started actually pillaging the, uh, the furniture uh, from people, stuff like that. And we were stuck, basically. Okay, we had prepared and we even had in the backyard, we grew vegetables and things like that so that we could survive. But after a few weeks, it got to be too stressful. And we started to think, what can we do? And that's when an idea came up, because uh, Beit Sahur is a shepherd's field, as was pointed out, where the shepherds uh, were told that Jesus was born just up the hill. And since then, the shepherd's field uh, was a tourist town, if you want, and well connected to the international community. So the people of the town, many of them spoke different languages, including Hebrew, by the way. They said, why don't we call on the international community, including Israelis, to come and help us? And this was, by the way, I don't know if you know this history or not, this was the beginning of the international solidarity movement and the beginning of the joining of the Israeli public in uh, civil disobedience and other uh, activities in the West Bank. Uh, so, uh, the, as a result of these activities, a small center was created called the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement between people. The idea is to bring people together, Israelis, Palestinians, internationals. And it's not bringing them together so that we can eat hummus together and drink coffee and pat each other in the back and have group uh, therapy. It's getting together to, to do something, right? And do something in a peaceful but positive way, uh, direct interventions, basically. And it worked, by the way. And people forget that. My book, Popular Resistance in Palestine, is titled A History of Hope and Empowerment. It is actually modeled after Howard Zinn's book about uh, people's history in the United States. Well, I don't speak about what the politicians did, Arafat or Bani, uh, you know, Ben-Gurion or uh, you know, all the American leaders. I'm talking about what the people did and what the people have accomplished working for human rights. I tell you this story because I'm really honored that you have invited me to speak in your synagogue. And I have always admired the work that you all do here in Albuquerque. And as pointed out, I, I have been connected here for 15 or longer years of people. And I used to be a neighbor here in Lubbock, Texas. That's where I met my wife and uh, where I had my son. And uh, it's, a, it's a very precious part of the country. I consider it a second home for me. Just for the record, by the way, so that there's no confusion about my identity, if you want. Uh, I don't have any. <laughs> um, no, I'm a human being, that's all. But, but if you want a little bit of my history, that's personal more than what the professional things that are not as important usually as a personal story. My father is actually Greek Orthodox. My mother is Lutheran. Uh, my wife is Chinese-American, her family is Buddhist. Uh, my son was born in Lubbock, Texas, so he's a redneck. <laughs> and, 
And he's been dating all sorts of girls, but the last girl he's been dating, I don't know what he's dating now, but the last girl he was dating is a Jewish girl, so I could have Jewish grandchildren, I don't know. My sister went to Utah and she became a Mormon. <laughs> and I have cousins who converted to Islam, and so uh, as for me personally, I'm just confused. So, <laughs> uh, so don't ask me about those things, okay? Uh, but uh, but what I want to talk about is a little uh, obviously something different in the title of the talk. I think. So we in Palestine, of course, um, have lived together, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, for hundreds, thousands of years, actually. Uh, as I mentioned, my family is, you know, Christian mixed, but we trace our ancestors to the third, fourth century AD. And probably before that, who knows, maybe Jewish or pagan or something at that time. So when, you know, they converted to Christianity either at that time or before that time. It may be before that time, but really was declared in the 4th century because the Roman Empire stopped feeding us to the lions. So people uh, became more open about their Christianity at the time. Uh, but my grandfather, uh, actually, his best friend in school was Jewish, Palestinian Jewish person. And by the way, these are the Jewish Arabs. Have you heard that term? Because sometimes you uh, hear the term Jews versus Arabs. But I don't know if you know that there are Jewish Arabs. Because Arab is not a, is not a religion, it's not an ethnicity, it's a language group. So Jewish Arabs are Jews whose mother tongue is Arabic and Palestinian Jews spoke Arabic. And they lived with us, and, and uh, I remember in 1967, actually, I was 10 years old at the time, uh, there was a knock on the door, and this old gentleman comes in, in and hugs my father and they, both, uh, my grandfather, and they both started crying, and I'm like, what, what is this, who is this guy? And then my grandfather tells me that this is his Jewish friend who he has not seen since 1948 because between 1948 and 1967 they couldn't go either way. Palestinians couldn't go beyond the Green Line and vice versa. Israeli Jews couldn't come to Palestine. So people have lived together. Now Jews were a minority, of course, in Palestine until very recently. As you know, this graph, for example, illustrates the populations in Palestine before. Now we have, uh, you know the history of Zionism, I'm not going to make this a, a history lesson because I'm not really interested in this, but I want to uh, say since we are in 2017 that we are at the 100th anniversary of the Balfour and Cambon declarations. Now you, many of you have heard about the Balfour declaration, but probably, how many of you have heard of the Cambon declaration? The French Declaration. It's few, only three people. So there was an, a parallel declaration about the same time from the French government with almost the exact same language as the Balfour Declaration in support of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And we want to go into the history of why these declarations came through. You can study them if you want. Uh, but the bottom line is the idea is to create a Jewish state in Palestine. Uh, it's an idea, by the way, that uh, uh, made some sense to some people. 
And uh, it, uh, if you think about it, it's actually a natural response uh, to discrimination in Europe. Uh, when Jews were discriminated in Europe with anti-Semitism and pogroms in Russia and so forth, humans have one or two responses to persecution, either fight or flight, right? Just like animals also. Uh, so, so fight or flight. So when you are discriminated against, either fight it or you go do something else. In this case, go create a Jewish state in Palestine. Um, in, in North America, by the way, there was the same response from blacks. Uh, there were many blacks who fought discrimination, people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Edwin Douglas and many others. There were some blacks who said, you can't live with white people, let's go create our own state and let's go back to Africa. There was a movement called Back to Africa and that movement created the state in West Africa, you know it, right? Liberia. Liberia. And Liberia is, uh, you know, for the idea of liberty, freedom, so one can understand the motivation of the people who did that. The problem for them was, of course, that Liberia was not a land without a people for a people without a land. So there is a conflict until today between the Liberian black American colonizers and between the native people. And colonizers, by the way, is the right terminology. Uh, colonization. Now, part of the reason why I say this is because I'm in, as pointed out, I'm in the medical field. And I say, uh, when I was teaching at Yale Medical School of Duke, I would tell my medical students, you have to take a little bit of patient history to understand what went on. You have to make the right diagnosis. You have to apply the right therapy to that diagnosis that's specific to that diagnosis. And then you can tell the patients a little bit about prognosis. What is the likelihood of a cure? Uh, in this case, we have to make the right diagnosis based on understanding a little bit of history. As I said, I don't want to go into a, a history. That, you know, many of you know it better than I do. Uh, but the bottom line is this history is a history that can be considered colonization. It was common, by the way, everybody was doing colonization in the late 19th century, early 20th century. I mean, it's hard to think of a country that was not either colonized or colonized that, if you want. So it was common sense to use that terminology. Okay, if we agree, and that's a big if, I realize, you know, for this audience, sometimes maybe you won't agree, which is fine. But if you agree with my diagnosis that it's colonialism, anti-colonial struggle, one can actually think of it in a positive terminology, not in a negative terminology. Why? Because what's the outcome of colonization? Colonization can be one of three possible scenario outcomes. Either the natives win, and that's very, very rare, by the way. <laughs> Uh, maybe Algeria you can think of, where one million French had to leave Algeria. But other than that, I don't know any other country. It's very rare. Uh, second outcome is where the colonizers themselves win. And that's also fairly rare, but a little more common than the first scenario. And that happens by genocide. And thank God for us Palestinians, the Zionists did not choose genocide for us, like in Australia or Papua New Guinea or New 
New Zealand or any of those. That leaves a third scenario, which is the most common, found in about 140 or 150 countries in the world, whereby the colonizers and the colonized do what? Like think Cuba, Mexico, South America, Central America, Southeast Asia, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, South Africa, all of these countries. What happened to them? The colonizers and the colonized lived together. They even intermarried, so you cannot tell now whether a Mexican person is Spaniard in origin or native in origin, or Brazilian is, uh, is Portuguese in origin or native in origin. That's uh, the three outcomes. There's no fourth outcome, by the way. There's no colonial, anti-colonial struggle that ended up, for example, by dividing the colonized countries between the colonizer and the colonized, a la two-state scenario, as they call it. It doesn't happen in history. We can talk about that if you're interested. Um, now, this gives me optimism. The other reason I'm optimistic, by the way, uh, I'll mention a little bit, but uh, today there are 7 million Palestinians who are refugees or displaced people. As you know from these 500 Palestinian villages and towns which were depopulated in 1948, some 7 million of us are refugees or displaced people. This is the distribution of the Palestinians in the world, where we are, um, mostly in the West Bank, uh, Gaza Strip, uh, a little bit inside of what is called now Israel within the Green Line, uh, 1.6 million Palestinians live there. And Israel is on 78% of the land, but also Israel now occupies the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which was the occupation of 1967. Now, if you think of colonization uh, as this picture illustrates, if you agree to that terminology, I'll go back to why I'm optimistic a little bit. So I said one reason why I'm optimistic is the outcome of other situations, other patients, if you want, who had this diagnosis is pretty good, not too bad. So our uh, likelihood of success is good. But the second reason for my optimism has to do with Palestine itself. Uh, let's talk about the museum a little bit. Here I come to the Second reason I'm optimistic about the future in Palestine. Uh, probably you, know, you don't have to be a biologist to know that diversity in nature is strength, right? That a sign of a healthy ecosystem is when it has many uh, species, few individuals of many species. Diversity in human society is also a sign of strength in that society. Societies that try to be dominated by one species or one culture or one religion or one ideology are unstable and they will not survive. You know this from studying history. The Nazis lasted, what, 13 years? And I don't think it was just the conflict, the war that destroyed the Nazi ideology. It was the fact that the ideology itself has a problem not sustainable, pisses off a lot of people, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is natural, it's understandable. 
apartheid in South Africa, the attempt to make a white government for the white people, run by white people, blah, blah, blah. Not very good, not very stable, doesn't last. So the same in the Middle East, by the way. Remember the Crusaders? Crusaders came to the Middle East, they killed uh, Muslims, they killed Jews, they killed, by the way, also my ancestors. On my father's side, Greek Orthodox, they considered them just as infidel as others. So they also killed them because we also fought with the Muslims. We fight against invading army. But the Crusaders lasted 120, 130 years. At the height of their power, at the height of their power, there were more non-Catholics in Palestine than there were Catholics. I don't know if you know that or not. And they came with the propaganda that they are trying to liberate the holy sites from Christians, from Muslim rulers. But in reality, before the Crusaders come, the Christian holy sites were under the rule of Christians, including my family. So was, the ideology was not correct. And it was not about the religion, by the way. We cannot say the Crusaders because of Christianity. Sorry, you know, Jesus preached, they hit you on the right cheek, you turn the left cheek to them. They want your shirt, give them your coat too. Uh, so that is not certainly compatible with kill the infidels. <laughs> You know, it doesn't work that way. But it, uh, it is used, okay? The same thing with that. There was one Muslim ruler, by the way, who tried to make Palestine a Muslim country. He and his son, by the way, total lasted 40 years. Even at the height of their rule, there were more non-Muslims in Jerusalem even than there were Muslims. So they failed. These ideologies failed. And this last ideology of uh, trying to create a Jewish state in Palestine also failed. Past tense, not future tense. Now, some of you may be like, what? <laughs> it has failed. It has failed to create a Jewish state in Palestine. But even if you don't agree with me, you're not as optimistic as I am, it will fail because simply history is against this trend. Even there was a survey in 2003 among Israeli Jews asking them, what do you expect to be here in 2048, 100 years after Israel was established? And 70% of Israeli Jews said there will not be a Jewish state of Israel. It will be a democratic, secular state for all its people. Not that they want it, by the way. The majority of them still probably support Zionism. But it's reality, it's not realistic, not, uh, not, com not possible to, to continue on that. So that's part of the other reason that I am optimistic, is because attempts to make uniformity, to make Jewish or Muslim or Christian states or Baha'i states or white states or whatever, German Aryan states, uh, don't work. Simple. It, it just doesn't work. Mazen Kamsia's optimism about nature and society is what really makes his research and activism so interesting. To read more of his perspective, check out his book, Popular Resistance in Palestine, A History of Hope and Empowerment. And to read more of his writings about activism and research, make sure to visit kamsia.org, Q-U-M-S-I-Y-E-H.org, 
Before we return to more of Kamsiya's lecture, here's Smile by Uncle Cracker. You're better than the best I'm lucky just to linger in your life Cooler than the flip side of my pillow That's right Completely unaware Nothing can compare to where you sent me Let's me know that it's okay This is Alicia Hernandez with Generation Justice. And tonight, we are listening to a presentation by Mazin Kamsia that he gave at Nahalat Shalom here in Albuquerque. Mazin Kamsia is the founder and director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History. While he was visiting New Mexico, he toured our Natural History Museum as well. His presentation examined all the connections between New Mexico and Palestine, both as violently colonized lands with vibrant natural histories. His optimism for the future is what truly inspires him to continue his activism. Here is more of what gives Kamsia his positivity. But anyways, um, to step back, there's another third reason why I'm optimistic, which is something that most people don't think about when they think of the Middle East. When you think of the Middle East and the conflict in the Middle East, you tend to think of the time frame that you and I are unlucky enough to be born in. You don't look at the long history. And some of you will say, wait a minute, I thought the long history is a bloody history, people duking it out, that's what Hollywood tells us, right? Uh, but actually, scientifically, if you look at percentage of years in which Palestine, the Fertile Crescent, the whole area, if you want, was involved in conflict relative to its history of civilization between courts. It's actually tiny that we were in conflict, certainly much less than Europe as a percentage of its history. Most of our history, 99% of our history is a peaceful history, has no conflict. And even during the periods of conflict, 137 years, let's say, or if you take it since Herzl, uh, or since uh, 1917, Belfort Declaration, 100 years. In the past 100 years, conflict, wars, blah, blah. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> Compared to other conflicts, we are like nothing. Nothing. Uh, how many Israelis were killed, by the way, since the 1948 when the state of Israel was killed, was created in Palestine? Since 1948, how many Israeli Jews were killed? How many Palestinians were killed? Most of us, by the way, don't know these numbers. They're worth numbers to look at. For Israeli Jews, less than 10,000, about six to 8,000, depending on who you ask. For Palestinians, about eight times more, 70,000 or so Palestinians who were killed. But 70,000, come on. I mean, when the Europeans came here, they would kill 70,000 in a day, you know, <laughs> with the diseases they brought or whatever, you know. So, so it is a small, a small scale compared to others. And by the way, most of the people lived, continued to live together, trade together, do whatever together. Now, I say all of this because I'm, as I said, I'm optimistic. 
doesn't mean that I'm 100% sure that human rights will triumph and we will live together happily ever after, kumbaya, all this stuff, okay? <laughs> no, and we human species is a very strange species. Right? I don't know if you know that. Um, we actually uh, could destroy the earth. I mean, she read parts of what I wrote in one of my messages. We have two ways that we could end up destroying ourselves as a species, as homo sapiens. The dinosaurs were killed but by meteorites, which gave open the way for the mammals and the birds. So we should be thankful, by the way, for the meteorites, because without it, we humans would not be. Uh, but anyways, that was an external factor. Dinosaurs, poor dinosaurs, didn't have a choice. We have a choice. We humans have a choice. Uh, because, you know, it's in our hand. The technology is advancing so rapidly. Nuclear weapons, for example, now proliferating beyond anybody's imagination, by the way. I'm sure now there's like eight or nine countries, including Israel and Pakistan, India, in the Middle East, who have nuclear weapons. But I'm sure anybody could now make nuclear weapons. It's not very difficult technology. Um, and people could, could destroy Earth. The other, the other way to destroy Earth is, as I pointed out in that paragraph, is uh, through climate change. Both of them are dependent on us being uh, crazy enough to follow those crazy fools who are, uh, who when they get their first million, they want 10 million, and when they get 10 million, they want 100 million, when they get 100 million, they want a billion, and so on. They don't seem to get enough. This is the problem that we face. Um, now, we have some environmental justice issues that are related to the Israeli uh, colonization or occupation of Palestine. For example, when uh, Zionists decided to drive the wetland uh, areas of the Hula area in the north of the country, which resulted in the uh, disappearance of 119 species. Also, when Israel decided as a first mega project when it was created in 1948 is to uh, divert the water of the Jordan Valley, literally steal the water of the Jordan Valley and divert it to the west. In areas that really don't need it, by the way, there's plenty of rain in those areas, there's plenty of agriculture. It's part of the Fertile Crescent, as I said, the land of milk and honey. It is not like it's an arid region. Israel never made the desert bloom. I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who are, uh, still think that Israel made the desert bloom. Uh, I can demonstrate this for you very easily if you want. Send me an email and I'm happy to send you that information. Uh, but the diversion of the Jordan Valley water in the western part was politically motivated because at the time the West Bank and Jordan were under, not under Israeli rule. So starving the Jordan Valley water was a very good strategy politically and resulted in desertification of the Jordan Valley and reduction of the water uh, levels going into the valley. This is what caused the Dead Sea, by the way, to shrink. And uh, the shrinkage of the Dead Sea is now recognized as an environmental problem that has to be faced. And Israel decided uh, many years ago, actually, they finally managed to get Jordan on board to connect the Red Sea with the Dead Sea. This project is ongoing now. 
funded by uh, what will end up costing 15 billion dollars from the World Bank. Uh, most of it will be debts from the Jordanian government to pay, unfortunately. It, it is a way to control the Jordanian government with debt. It is a catastrophic uh, uh, event, if you want. Uh, connecting the Red Sea with the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the lowest point on Earth. And, but still, the Red Sea, uh, you have to pump water up, and then it goes down to the Dead Sea. And to pump water up, they will build hydroelectric plants also, and they will do desalination. And they are not going to put the water of the Red Sea in the Dead Sea. They will put what's left from desalinating the water of the Red Sea, that sludge that's left, that's what they will dump into the Dead Sea. A uh, very, very catastrophic event uh, from an environmental standpoint. I did the preliminary environmental impact assessment on it, and it's horrible. Again, I won't go into details, but this is also, I mean, I can tell you, for example, this area where the canal is being dug, the pipeline is being dug, is uh, prone to earthquake. The whole Palestine, Israel, Jordan, whatever you want to call it, is prone to earthquakes because we are on a rift between the uh, Arabian plate on one hand and the African plate on the other. That's what created the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea and down into Tanzania and Kenya and, and the savannas of those areas where you see the wildebeest. And, um, and we get earthquakes about every 80 to 100 years. We face many other problems, including climate change, as I pointed out, in Palestine, in our region, in the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, whatever you want to call it, land of Canaan. Uh, we expect temperatures to rise 2 to 4 degrees, rainfall to drop by 20 to 25 percent. Uh, it's going to have catastrophic impact on sustainability of the populations there. And so if this is the problem that we face as a species now, it is not a problem that's localized. It's not like I said yesterday in one of my talks, uh, is uh, like the Belgian genocide in uh, Congo, for example. It's localized. Okay, millions of people died, but it's localized. Now it can be very dangerous. It can be the whole species go extinct if we continue down the path. So we have to change our ways. Now, without going too deep into that, what is our role in reversing this? How am I, Mazen, as a lemming, passing with all these other lemmings that are heading to the cliff, what am I going to say to the fellow lemmings? You know? <laughs> Stop, you're heading to a cliff. Sometimes unworkable, that's where we are moving. Uh, so... I don't know. So I've been struggling with this uh, question for years. And I have come, changed my views about certain things sometimes, changed my direction in life a little bit uh, about certain things. I don't want to bore you with the details of my changes in views. But the last uh, episode of my life, this one that I'm in now, is that I think we need to work with children. I think each of us need to focus on working with children. Don't lecture them, don't teach them, but try to create an environment like we do in our botanical garden 
or in this botanical garden we visited today with these beautiful flowers where we create the environment for them to grow and to challenge and to uh, be critical thinkers, not rogue you know, followers of uh, nonsense, if you want. The best advice I ever got was from my grandfather. When I was 16 years old, he wrote, I, I had this book and I asked people to write, and since I respect my grandfather, I asked him to write it. And what he wrote in there, he said, I can only advise you one thing. You need to shed the chains that society builds around your brain. Whether they are chains of religion, chains of culture, chains of norms of behavior, shed all of these chains and start to think for yourself. This is not an easy task, he said. And, uh, and you have to work on it every day of your life. And if you work on it every day of your life, you will be very successful, more successful than you can imagine. If you let it go and you follow the lemmings, <laughs> well, he didn't say the lemmings, but if you follow the norms, then you are in trouble. And this was the best advice I think I uh, hear, you know, that, that I try to, to do. I want to just teach them to respect themselves, question, do critical attitude, shed those chains that I told you that uh, exist on us. Once they do that, then they can free to, and they'll make the right choices themselves. Mazin's legacy of natural history research combined with his belief in the next generation is what makes his work stand out. Again, for more information about Mazin, please take a look at his website at kamsiyeh.org. That's Q-U-M-S-I-Y-E-H dot org. Here you can see more of his writings, take a look at his blogs and newsletters, as well as how to purchase his book, Popular Resistance in Palestine. We've got a few more songs lined up for tonight, as well as an announcement after we get back from the break. Here's John Lennon with Imagine. We've come to the end of another great show. We'd like to thank Masen Kumtia and Nahalat Shalom for allowing us to record their event and more importantly for providing a space for important conversations about colonization. If you are between the ages of 13 and 25 and you're interested in participating in discussions like this, doing interviews in our community, or looking to learn more about social justice and media literacy, we are recruiting youth producers here at Generation Justice. If you're interested or know someone who might be interested in becoming a youth producer, you can find our application online at generationjustice.org apply. We hope to hear from you soon. Production assistance tonight came from Christina Rodriguez and Roberta Rael. And thanks to all of the youth producers. We could not do what we do without all of you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. 
We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Gon Alma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Alicia Hernandez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock.